Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. It is nine minutes after 10 o'clock. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Are South African mines falling below, by and large, and I mean, we're generalizing here, not all mines uh, here, but as a general norm across the industry, are South African mines falling below the uh, norms and standards of occupational safety uh, in the workplace? And what are those minimum standards of occupational safety? How are they tested legally? Um, and how do we know, how do we determine if a miner dies, whether it is by human error on part of the miner, were they adequately trained? Did they not receive refresher training? Or was it negligence on part of the mine? Negligence is an actual thing, uh, but how is it tested for in the law? And what are the implications thereof when a miner does sadly die, as 11 miners have died? But South Africa um, has lost over 50 uh, mine workers uh, in mine-related deaths this year. Look, we're doing well uh, uh, relative to 10 or 20 years ago. In fact, last year in South Africa, 49 miners uh, had died. But if you rewind back to 2002, uh, 2000, the year 2000, we had nearly 300 fatalities in the country, just under 300 fatalities. A decade ago, in 2013, we had just under 100 fatalities. Today, we're averaging at around 50 fatalities, over 50 fatalities on average over the last five years in South Africa. I guess by that standard, we're doing better than we used to, but the numbers are slowly trickling back upwards. George Kahn, a human rights lawyer and director at Richard Spoor Attorneys, specializing in occupational health and safety law and related industrial human rights law, joins us for this conversation, as well as Peter Major, who's a mining analyst and a director for mining at Morden Corporate Solutions. George, I'm going to start with you this evening. Good evening and thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I'm assuming there are incredibly strict regulations as far as occupational safety is concerned in a high-risk work environment like mining. And I don't assume mines don't take it serious. I'm assuming that there's an entire well-resourced office in every mine shaft everywhere in the country that does what they're supposed to do. But by and large, as a norm and a practice across the industry, are mines getting it wrong? Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for having me on your show. And, uh, good evening to your viewers. Um, Oliver, just before we maybe go into that, I just want to qualify one thing that you said, which is not strictly speaking correct. I mean, you basically said that there are certain numbers of mine workers that die from the mining industry. That number must be qualified to understand that that is the number of mine workers that die in the mine, sort of in a physical accident like yes, what yes. we've had in Impala. That's, that's what, what I meant. Is, I meant those numbers in that context. I, I must also say that in that context, uh, mine workers in the world workplace in the mine. I mean, because hundreds and hundreds of mine workers die every year as a result of occupational illnesses and diseases, which is more of the insidious aspects in terms of mine health yes, and safety. But that's to answer your question, but to answer your question, I mean, generally the regulations and the laws relating to mining, as mining is historically, um, in terms of human history, one of the most dangerous endeavors that humankind has ever incurred. And it remains inherently dangerous. Um, just by the very scope and the, the concept of the work that has been done, the regulations, the law relating to that are always going to be more stringent and more closely guarded and protected than what you would find, for example, your Occupational Health and Safety Act that deals with the studio where you're working at the moment. 
yeah. uh, mining is incredibly dangerous. We've been working in mining for many, many decades now in South Africa. A lot of the regulations that deals with this type of law is not new. Um, in fact, the chapter that deals with these incidents, what happened in Parler, is Chapter 16 of the Old Minerals Act. It can actually be dated back even beyond the Minerals Act in 1991, all the way back to the old Mines and Works Act of 1956 um, and its regulations that came into effect in 1971. So, I mean, and those regulations haven't substantially changed considerably. I mean, there have been changes here and there, but I mean, more or less, they remain the same as what they are. And I mean, it's generally the are they sense fit for, is are they what, fit for purpose regulations? So what you need to understand is when the Mine Health and Safety Act came into effect, there was a sort of a tectonic shift in the way we legally understand health and safety. What I mean by that is prior to that, there was a bit of a checklist system that would happen. So you would have regulations. And so long as you complied with each one of those subsections, and in mining, there are numerous subsections. Yeah. There's more than 123 subsections just relating to winding. Um after the Mine Health and Safety Act, it wasn't simply a checklist system. What now has to happen is mines are required to take what they talk about as all reasonably practical measures. It's a phrase in South Africa under COVID. We heard a great deal about it, but I worry that many lawyers, in fact, in South Africa don't completely understand what it means. Um, the best case law that deals with this uh, concept actually comes from the UK. It's more than 100 years old. It goes back to the 1940s. It's the matter of Edwards versus National Coal Board that asks the question, what does this duty actually mean? Yeah. And what it indicates and what it explained is, is that there is an assessment that always must be done by the mine, regardless of whether there is a regulation on a specific thing or not. And what it's required to do is it's meant to do a risk assessment and identify problems that may may be identified by the regulations or may be novel due to new technology, new circumstances, things like that. And then it has to do a calculation, a balancing calculation to determine what is the danger that is posed by this potential risk that it's identified and what is going to be the cost, both in time and money, in order to either eliminate it or, if yeah. unable to eliminate it, to mitigate it at the very least. And what happens is, even the extent that the danger becomes something closer to a fatality, even if it's a fairly marginal risk of that fatality occurring, what then happens is the weight that is given to the cost in terms of time and money becomes less significant. And it becomes a situation that you have to spend the money, regardless of the size of the mine and the capital infrastructure of the mine, on that aspect in order to render it safe. Yeah. And that's how our law is supposed to work. But typically that doesn't actually happen, unfortunately. What does, what happens? So what essentially happens frequently is the minds will sort of have a sort of a mantra cultural saying we take health and safety very seriously. And that's sort of a thing that they'll repeat repeatedly. They'll have posters about it. But it then comes down to the little nitty gritty thing. So, for example, if I can give you a simple example with dust diseases, um, most people understand that dust is a problem and they understand today that they need to wear a mask. However, when you go onto the websites of the mining companies, and I would encourage you and challenge you to do this, go yeah. onto the website sites of the companies and look for when they sort of depict mine workers. I can promise you in at least one of those pictures, you'll find a mine worker with it, with a beard or facial hair. Yeah. And that's a problem. Where having facial hair renders the face mask less effective. So when you go overseas, you'll often hear that they'll actually tell all the mine workers they need to be clean shaven. 
Okay. Right. We don't think about those types of things. So we don't properly train our mine workers to actually understand the little integrity things. To us, it's more of sort of a slogan that we say repeatedly and repeatedly and then believe that it becomes true. Why? why? Um, is, it expensive? is it too expensive for, for mines to actually do these nitty gritty, pedantic, uh, minute things that are important? Oliver, I think to a certain extent, it's a bit of a legacy in this country. So you must understand that under apartheid, there was two myths that were created in terms of mining. One is that we were one of the most profitable and uh, experienced sort of nations in the world in order to get money out of mining. And the second was that we were one of the safest mining countries in the world. The Leon Commission, led by the late Judge Leon, shattered that. And what we realized what was actually happening is we were not actually as safe as what we thought we were. In fact, we were doing quite badly in that extent. And what we realized is the reason why our mining companies under apartheid were able to make such enormous profits was because that they, we had created this culture where black mine workers were essentially fungible. And to a certain extent, that culture, we're starting to get, trying to get rid of that culture, but to a certain extent, it does remain with us a little bit, where we don't really recognize and empathize with these mine workers fully. Um, and we think, well, if one gets sick, we can replace them. We'll say to them, let them let their son come and replace their father. We think that's generous. Or a mine worker gets injured or killed. There are many more mine workers to replace them. So effectively, um, and that's a problem. So it's it's effectively uh, white mining bosses that do not see uh, black expungible mine workers as human lives worth protecting as best as you possibly can. Oliver, I wish it was as simple as a black and white issue. I mean, unfortunately, to a certain extent, it surpasses the racial issue and it becomes a class issue to a large extent. So you will find today many black executive mine management people who will have a very similar view that they won't fully recognize the humanity in the mine worker at the very bottom and recognize that their safety is critical. Yeah. Um, I mean, they will say things like, Safety is important to us in that mantra. But what frequently happens is pr uh, production gets put before people and those types of issues. And it's very, very problematic. Um, they will say, well, tell us what it is that we haven't done correctly. Mm. And that's the wrong approach to look at this. In terms of the duty to take all reasonable practical measures, it's not for us to say, what did they do wrong? It's for them to actually say to us, what did they do right? Yeah. Because the way that the, the onus works there is if someone dies in a mine, in a mine accident, we can presume that it's the mine's responsibility. And the reason for that is because mining is so complicated. I mean, I understand that you're an engineer as well, and you would appreciate that uh, the complications in the mines are so complicated that a typical mine worker has no hope of possibly understanding all the details and information that requires, is required in order to run a mine. Yeah. So typically what happens is the information rests with management. They know what is actually happening. Yeah. Um, the mine workers themselves are fairly ignorant of most things. So, I mean, to a certain extent, the right to refuse dangerous work is also curtailed. Because they I, 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 I want to put a, I wanna put a to pin refuse. in that, that. I didn't even know that's a thing. The right to refuse dangerous work. I'm assuming all work in mining is dangerous work. And if you refuse any of it, you're refusing all of the work. I want to put a pin in that because I want to circle back to it. But before I do that, I do want to take a break. Give me a call. 86 2032 I'm taking your reaction. 0 
086-000-2032. On the other side of this, we continue the conversation. Monday to Thursdays, 10 to midnight. 22 minutes after 10 p.m. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I'm talking to George Carney, human rights lawyer and a attorney specializing in occupational health at Richard Spoor Attorneys, as well as Peter Major, mining analyst and director for mining at Morden Corporate Solutions. Peter, I'm assuming mines are spending a lot of money in occupational health and safety, both at a implementation level as well as a training level. Why do we still have... Uh, fatalities, which many say are avoidable. Look, many needs to define who they are. And let's say we had 50 deaths. Was it last year? 49.50. Yeah. So you've got 450,000 men working on the mines and you had 50 deaths. And that's every day those men are doing one of the most dangerous occupations in the world. So I think we have to keep things in perspective. You know, we have to say, okay, what about if these men were policemen? How many policemen die a year? And I don't know how many policemen we have, maybe 120,000. And how many policemen die a year? 100, 120, 150? So does that mean it's 10 times more dangerous being a policeman? And he's on the surface. You know, he's not down a mine too two kilometers deep with hot water trying to drown him and then the ground trying to smash him. Um, and what about traffic? If, if you're in the traffic, you know, we're killing, what, 20,000 people a year driving cars. You know, that should be a lot safer than going underground. And, and coal trucks. Our coal trucks are killing more people a month than the mines kill in a year. So I think we got to keep perspective Yes, we could close all the mines down and we'll save 50 lives. But if, is there a well, difference to you, Peter, uh, a mine worker dying from, hypothetically, a boulder or a rock falling on him? It's unfortunate they didn't see that it was about to break off. Whatever happens underground, I'm not entirely sure. But dying from a rock seems like a plausible thing versus a mine worker dying from a mechanical failure in an elevator. Yeah, that's, that's where man has some control. He has some control over a rock burst. It's the way he designs his tunnels. And in our more advanced minds, we're learning how to use seismicity. Sorry, Peter. On the mechanical, mechanical side, you're right. You inspect it. You double inspect it. You check it. You test it. And you do it on a regular basis. We say this is a freak accident what happened in Pala because right now we can't think of anything similar that's happened in 100, 120 years. Now, I haven't seen any information. I'm probably the last guy to ask, was that preventable? Was that an act of God? Was it sabotage? Was it sloppy maintenance, incompetence? Was it negligence? I just don't know. But I do know on a rough scale, Probably nearly half the accidents we have in mind can be to negligence or actual criminality. Maybe that's that's a rough estimate. In other words, somebody was doing something that everybody else would have said that is dangerous. You shouldn't do it, or he knew he was doing it, or or he was in a place he shouldn't be because he's trying to scale. Yeah. So, but even then, you're going to have at least fifty percent of those accidents nobody could have predicted. 
we we've made a lot I mean of but it's 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 hell of a lot less uh, and, and we'd rather take those numbers than take the resultant numbers right well, I, I, it is a lot less and training and individual responsibility could take care of that but to say you've got 10,000 men going down at some of our platinum mines is their life totally dependent on management do they not have some responsibility we know they have rights but you know when we were kids remember we were taught for every right you have, you have a responsibility. So how responsible are those people? Do they go to training courses? Do they pass the courses? Do they agree, hey, my life is in my hands. I have a lot to do with it. Or do they say, oh, it's not my responsibility. I've got a hard hat. You know, the mind, the mind management is take care of me. So you're right. Half of those, probably nobody can prevent. It's a dangerous occupation. Yeah, George, I just want to bring you back in here. Um, a mine worker dying from a you know, a, I, I don't know, a explosive going off at a wrong time and it's purely an accident. It, you know, no one is to be blamed really versus dying due to mechanical failure in an elevator as is the case in Mbala this past, this, this, this week. Those are two different types of situations uh, where culpability and responsibility is tested for differently. How is it tested for and how is it sanctioned? I'm not entirely sure that there is a... Oh, John, Oliver. sorry, can you start there again? Sorry, you just lost you there for a second. Sorry, Oliver, can you hear me now? Much clearer, much clearer. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. Oliver, I'm not entirely sure that the legal criteria would be different. And I mean, the reason why I say that is that in terms of explosives and mechanical things, it's more or less the same kind of standard that they is utilized. Let me give you an example. In the recent Lily Mine Judgment Inquest um, that was recently handed down, what happened there is that there was explosives and there was work that was being done uh, by so-called Zamazamas. That's not something that can really be in management's control. Okay. Yeah. However, what the court there found was that the mine had failed to take reasonable assessments of the situation. And if they had taken reasonable assessments of the situation, they may have still been able to prevent those three deaths that occurred. And as a result of that, the magistrate said, well, maybe the prosecutions do need to look at this for a possible criminal trial against the company. So what typically happens is you can't simply say, well, it's just one of those things. The way Mine Health and Safety Act works is it's a case of trying to identify what went wrong and then trying to rectify it so that never happens again. But it's also more proactive than that. It's not a reactionary statute. It's not a reactionary law. It requires that the mine, the employer, ultimately the CEO, has to be take responsibility for looking out for any future potential dangers that may occur. So if the technology changes, they have to ask the question, how does this affect or change the safety stuff? What else do we need to do? Do we need to research something? Do we need to check something? And ultimately, what you must understand about mine health and safety regulations is it's a self-regulatory system. The government is Sorry, not. Sorry, what, what do you mean police. by that? There's no regulatory. So, there's no overarching statutory regulatory body for that. No, no, that's not what I mean at all. There definitely is. What I mean is that it's ultimately the ultimate responsibility is upon the employer to take full ownership and responsibility for ensuring that its systems are working and that as is providing a safe environment to its employees as well as non-employees. Okay. What doesn't happen is the DMR doesn't stand on their uh, looking over their shoulder all the time like a policeman looking to say, well, why did you do that? Don't do that, all those sort of things, and directing them in that manner. That doesn't happen. Should, so there isn't should, a strict... that, should that happen? 
Well, to be very honest with you, I'm not entirely sure that the government would have the resources to be able to do those sorts of things. And I don't know if government also has the expertise to understand some of the very complicated technology that's going on in all of these mines. I mean, some of the mining companies are using state-of-the-art technology that has got some of the best sort of experts in the world that are required to understand how it works. Um, I mean, in the Lily Mine inquest, for example, we were looking at a crown pillar situation that had collapsed, and the experts in that are actually from Canada, Norway, and China. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know to what extent the South African government would have a person sitting in a desk or somewhere in Pretoria, wherever they might be, that would have also the same equivalent knowledge about that sort of thing. What is required is they need to take ownership in order to proactively assess what the problems are and do so on a continuing basis. So it's not a simple situation of saying, well, we've done a risk assessment in 1990. We don't need to do it again. It's now 2000. It's an evolving process. So what I, happens is every year you need to relook at it and think, well, is this working? Can we now, with new technology that has become available, solve a problem that last year we couldn't? Yeah, I perhaps need to ask this, um, and, and this is a point that, that Peter raised uh, earlier on, George, and that is the point that um, sometimes it is negligence due to the mine workers who may want to take a shortcut, who may want to uh, do something that's particularly dangerous, and there's no sense of you know, uh, you know, taking responsibility at that level. Um, and sometimes a mine worker may not be adequately trained enough, may have had training, but not frequently or regular training and that sort of stuff. Is there a uh, legal requirement as to how often a mine worker must write a, a safety test, how often they must do safety training um, and do mines in South Africa by and large uh, adhere to that? So, Oliver, there are requirements, strict requirements on how frequently the training must do and to a certain extent the content of the training required. However, what I can tell you from having consulted with numerous mine workers is that those training mechanisms frequently are problematic to the extent that you'll have a group of people in a room who are told this is what the training is and then they'll have to pass a test. And they'll be told the answer is A or the answer is B. And it'll become to a certain extent that you would actually have to be an absolute imbecile to pop, to fail those tests. And that's problematic. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need to have a situation where you do a proper assessment. Do they genuinely understand the content of the work? Are they taking it seriously? Is it being given to them in a language which they understand, which is also a big problematic? I've dealt with many mine workers who said, yes, they attend the training every every year, but it's either in English and Afrikaans, and they're not completely fluent in either of those languages, mm. which is then, mm. what's the point? Mm. I mean, I understand the whole concept of saying, well, look, the mine worker took a, a, a shortcut, and that's what the thing, how it, what happened. You must understand in terms of mining, there are fail-safe systems that take into effect. So in order for something like this to go wrong, it can't just be one person's omission or act inaction that they did that result in this. It's going to be multiple levels of failure. Mm. So starting from the training, which is the, probably your first thing, right all the way down to why did the design mechanisms not cater for this type of situation? Why were there not additional braking mechanisms? All of those types of things coming. So in order for something like this to happen, it has to have failures at numerous locations, not a single location. So what typically happens is mine management will frequently identify so-called so a, a patsy or a sort of a, a 
sacrificial uh, lamb and sort of say, well, it's his fault and it's all his responsibility. But frequently, many frequently, it can't be allocated to just one person. It's frequently, it's a structural problem. There's a problem in terms of the management system. Okay. I, and that's where the issue is. Yeah, Peter, I want to bring you back in here and, and perhaps ask this. Are we making it expensive enough for mines not to get it right uh, as best as they possibly can. That is to say, when you do training, make sure that the person doesn't cheat or make sure that there isn't somebody passing around a, a answer sheet so that they can uh, copy the answers in a safety training test or make sure that the, the mine workers are actually getting training in a language that they understand um, and that they are frequently uh, given refresher courses or whatever the case may be. Are we making it expensive enough for mines to not get those things right? Look, that's a great question because at the end of the day, everything in life boils down to economics. Whether you call yourself a socialist or a capitalist, a communist, an anarchist, everybody individually, it comes down to economics. So are we making it expensive enough? Well, look, we've put 400,000 men out of work the last 25 years. And we've done it under the highest commodity prices we've ever seen. So we're definitely making it more expensive. But there's still 450,000 men working. So maybe it's not expensive enough. Maybe we got to make it more expensive and then we can put another 400,000 men out of work. It's, economics has to decide. You cannot make any of these decisions without economics. The airlines, how many people do they kill a year? Should we not make it more expensive for them to kill people? Well, maybe we do, but then we will all pay the price. We'll all have to pay double for our plane fare. So what is the answer? Yeah. How much must we dial up the heat? How much money must we spend? And you can talk to any mine manager, and he'll tell you how he wishes he could spend his money. And, and he thinks, if I could spend it this way, instead of following all these regulations made by people who don't know very much about mining, I think I could have a lot more safety. But I'm forced to spend my money in this direction. I'm forced to do sewage, lights, um, community this and that. Um, you know, we, we were talking about who's responsible for a miner when he dies. Mm. Obviously, the mine has insurance, but is the mine totally responsible for that person? Shouldn't that person have had some personal insurance? In most countries, you have social insurance. The guy pays taxes. Shouldn't the government have some kind of social security? Most countries do. Most countries I know do. So shouldn't government also help compensate the family? And what about the union? Most unions I know internationally, they've got a medical fund. They've got a death benefit. So, yeah, must the mines carry everything? Well, if we want them to, we can legislate that they do carry everything, but then we'll have another 400,000 men go out of work, and we'll only have 50,000 working instead of 850 working when I came here. So, yeah. yeah, economics is the key at all of this. It'll decide where the money gets spent and what must be done. George, are we making it expensive enough for mines to not get this right? To not get this wrong, my apologies? <laughs> Absolutely not. And I can say to you uh, with a very sort of specific reason why not. I, as a lawyer, may not sue the mine where they are negligent, even grossly negligent, and they cause the person's death in a mine accident like this. That is a result of Section 35 of the Compensation of Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act, which grants mines immunity. What they are required to do in compromise is that they can approach the state 
um, the compensation fund, or more in particularly in this particular case, the RAND Mutual Assurance, which is the private insurer that takes on the responsibilities for COIDA. And they will be compensated out of that system. But what that system does not provide for as part of the compromise, the great compromise, is it does not provide them with their general damages or what we colloquially refer to as their pain and suffering and loss amenities of life. Yeah. So what what happens is a mine worker might be able to recover some of their lost income, um, their medical expenses and things like that. And the, the benefit of the COIDA is that if they are severely injured or they're killed, their widow would receive a pension for the rest of her life until the month that she passes away or the mine worker as well until he passes away eventually. The system itself is very unkind, though. Um, it's based on what the courts have colloquially also referred to as the meat chart, so which is a schedule two, which basically indicates that if you lose a hand, it's worth 50%. If you lose an eye, it's worth 30%. And those percentages, like that sort of like butcher's diagram that you see on the cow or the pig when you walk into the butcher to tell you how much each piece of the meat is worth. It divides up the human body in a similar manner and tells you, well, if you have been completely deaf from as a result of mining, um, you are only regarded as a maximum of 50% disabled, which means that you will get no more than 37.5% of your income that you were receiving before, despite the fact that you may never be employed in that mm. industry ever again. So COIDA in itself doesn't really have much humanity in it. What would be far better, and I mean, you don't need to go very far for this. You could just walk across the border into Botswana, where their system allows you to get your COIDA benefits. But in addition to that, where there is negligence, you can actually sue the employer for the remaining general damages. And when people get sued, typically that's where they start taking being very, very careful. When you give people immunity, legal immunity from civil liability, that's when they start being a little bit more or a little bit less diligent. Yeah. Um, and they become less careful. Um, one of the reasons why you could say in the last 10 years that the mining industry suddenly sat up and started taking dust levels very, very seriously is because my firm obtained a constitutional judgment that said we were allowed to sue them for those specific lung diseases. And suddenly what would have cost them absolutely nothing because COIDA previously gave them, granted them immunity or so they thought. Now suddenly they've had to pay out a five billion rand settlement, and that five billion rand is not a capped settlement. It actually may end up being more yeah. than that. And then suddenly, as a result of that, they said, "Well, we need to get the dust under control," and they've made undertakings to make sure that their dust levels are not simply below the South African maximum levels, but are actually approaching the levels that you would find in the Western countries, yeah. which are much lower than ours. George, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Peter Major, mining analyst, and George Khan, uh, occupational health and safety lawyer. I'm taking your reactions to that. Give me a call, 086-000-2032, 086-000-2032. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. I had absolutely no idea that mines had immunity when it came to these sort of things and the litigation pertaining to it. Wow.